Morning, church. We love you more than you know. We're going to begin preaching and speaking to you as disciple makers. So you guys are disciple makers and everyday missionaries. We're going to begin to encourage you in terms of little steps of how to get there. We want to be a vibrant church that reproduces vibrant churches. You've heard that. But how do we get from here to there? And so when we think about our church and where we're headed, we think about this potential building that God has called us to build and equipped us to build. And and, and we hope that uh, we can challenge you uh, to contribute to this, but not just financially, not just your prayers, but to actively, you know, hands and feet, to get your hands dirty, to get your feet wet in the process of what God would do here. It's going to take an entire church, an entire army, uh, because whenever... Whenever buildings are erected and whenever new ministries are put forth, God does use that to bring people, different people, into the church from different stages of their faith and life, from everything from a seeker uh, to a new believer to mature believers who have just moved into the area. And what that means is we're going to need more help. And so how do we get from here to there is we must become a church that's reproducing disciple makers. Uh, I, I can't see how, uh, if we aren't a church that's filled with disciple makers, that means that each and every disciple of Jesus Christ reproducing disciples, that, that we can envision planting a church, right? Because you, if you have a church full of disciple makers, Jesus is going to call some of those disciple makers to be church planters, maybe bivocational. Uh, God's going to call missionaries. God's going to call some of you to go. Um, I, I also can't see how, uh, we can jump straight from here to planning of church if we don't fill in the in-between, which is we need more groups that can engage newcomers. And, and out of those groups that, that are filled with disciple makers, engaging newcomers might just be people who say we want to do this work elsewhere. Right? So how do we get from here to there? Is first, we infuse into all of our ministries a culture of disciple making. Not just discipleship, but disciple making, which means you re- every single believer reproducing disciples. And then you put those disciple makers into groups, communities that are on mission together. And Jesus then will mobilize his disciple makers. And out of that, you'll possibly get in Jesus's timeline, church plants, because Jesus built his church, but he calls us to reproduce disciples. So last week, if you were here, um, I used a lot of I in terms of myself to take ownership, to take responsibility uh, of, of where I need to grow and where I can better challenge you. But starting today, uh, we say we. Because now we're going to move forward together, okay? Uh, forward together as a church towards this vision. Now, I know there's some of you who are afraid because maybe for some of you, you're you're sitting here and you're saying, I have never been discipled or mentored spiritually in my life. I don't know how to make a disciple. That's some of you. Others of you, maybe you're here today and you're saying, I'm not qualified. So you're sitting there saying, I'm not qualified to disciple someone. How can I speak into someone's life? And what we want you to see is that in the New Testament, the apostles, at a certain point, they got busy. And so you had new Christians When I say new Christians, maybe they were Christians for a year or maybe five months or five weeks. And Jesus told them, 
you need to make disciples. And so you have new believers, relatively new believers, discipling new believers in this new movement called Christianity in the church. And so if you're afraid of making disciples, that's what we want to help you with, is that we're going through the gospel of Mark, and each and every week you're going to see what Jesus wants to teach his disciples. And today what we're going to see is Jesus is going to teach his disciples why we have something called Sunday. Back then they called it the Sabbath. And Jesus was teaching his disciples why there is a Sabbath. And all along, there are these Jewish leaders who are saying, well, no, no, the Sabbath means this. And Jesus says, this is really what the Sabbath means. And so when you translate that into our context today, today we're going to see why we worship on Sundays. Why do Christians go to church on Sundays? Now, for some of you, who are sitting in here, and you're like, man, I've been hearing this for 30 years. But it's really different, right? When now you got to sit down with a brand new seeker, and they're asking you, you know, as a Christian, why do you worship on Sundays? If the original Sabbath was on Saturday, why do you worship on Sundays? And if you're saying that you're supposed to rest to worship, then how come there's so many people in the church that are serving and working? Is that resting? You're going to have to answer these questions. So even if you know this, it's become muscle memory to you. Where for many of us, we just come on Sundays and and, and it's tradition. And so today we're going to see not just expositionally what Jesus taught his disciples, but how you can teach this to your children, which you already are. And how you can teach this to a new believer or a new Christian. We're basically preparing in faith that God is going to continue because he is. You're not having these conversations, but we are. We're seeing that there's new Christians in this room. There are non-Christians in this room, and they're coming in here, and you might not know. And some of them are getting saved, actually. And And they're asking these questions. Okay, so point number one, you ready? Let's go together. Mark chapter two. Mark chapter two. Expositionally, Mark chapter two. Let's start looking at verse 23. Jesus is going to teach his disciples about the meaning of the Sabbath. And then his disciples are going to have to go teach an entire new movement called Christianity. And so I think we can get on board with this too and learn how to teach others about what Jesus taught them. Because that's disciple making. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23. The first thing we're going to see today, point number one this morning. Point number one this morning is the true Sabbath is found in the person and work of Jesus, not religious observance. In other words, the Sabbath was found in the man, Jesus of Nazareth, who in this text, he's walking around and teaching people about himself. And maybe some people couldn't see that. And so what we see in verses 23 to 24, let me read that to you, the first two verses. It says, one Sabbath. So this would be Saturday. In the original Jewish context, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, were saying to them, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So this is another episode of conflict, controversy, between Jesus and his disciples versus the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees. And so first, we got to kind of understand what the Sabbath is. The Sabbath is Saturday. But how this would happen is, 
is the Sabbath would begin at sunset on Friday, and it would extend all the way to sunset on Saturday. And the Jews were commanded to set aside this time as holy to the Lord. Now, why do Christians celebrate the Sabbath on Sundays instead? It's simple. It's not written anywhere in the Bible, but it's the tradition that Jesus resurrected on Sunday. And so we call that Resurrection Sunday. And so Protestants from the beginning of the church would worship on Sundays. Now, that's not a hard and fast rule. Can you worship on Saturday as long as you're worshiping Jesus Christ? Yes, as long as you don't make that legalistic. As long as you're not telling people, hey, Saturday was the original days, therefore every other church is wrong. As long as you don't have that attitude, I think it's totally fine to take your Sabbath on Saturday if for some reason in your context you can't make it to church on Sunday. And there can be a lot of good reasons. Maybe you're a brand new Christian and, and, and you work Sunday mornings. And you have to work Sunday mornings because you don't have a choice because you're a nurse or you're a doctor on call and the hospital makes your your uh, your schedule. And you're saying, how can I follow Jesus? Well, you can go to a Saturday night service. As long as you don't judge everybody else for worshiping on Sunday, that's totally fine. right? It's the same way for us. We can worship on Sundays as long as we don't judge other people for having to worship Saturday nights because they're forced to work Sunday mornings. You see, the heart of, of what Jesus' message is, is honor the Sabbath in the heart. What does the Sabbath really mean? And that's what we're going to talk about well, this morning. But, but before we get there, in Judaism, the Sabbath, Saturday, was designed to uphold Yahweh as Lord of creation. And this is coming from Genesis, where God, in Genesis 1, He created the heavens and the earth in six days. And on the seventh day, which was Saturday, in our traditional calendar, he rested. And so in Exodus 20, in Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11, uh, 8 to 11, we see this as the fourth uh, commandment, right? The fourth commandment is that in Exodus, God, through Moses, tells Israel, you must honor the Sabbath. You must honor the Sabbath command, set that one day aside where you don't do formal work. And instead, you rest and worship God just like God rested. Now the key here is that it doesn't mean that you can't work. Because the entire time, God was working. Can you imagine that? Six days of the week, God works. And the seventh day, every seventh day He rests, the earth would fall apart. Right? We wouldn't be here. Because God is always working, sustaining life. And sustaining you and I. So God is always working. But the heart behind resting was a posture of the heart. It was, a, it was we're going to rest and worship God. Uh, in fact, we were created to work, if you didn't know that. That this Sabbath command actually didn't, ha- didn't come into play until after the fall of man. Because this comes in Exodus. So the reason why God has to give us the guidelines is because we were, we were conditioned to rest and work, meaning we were conditioned to work, and all of our work was supposed to be to the glory of God, and all of our work was supposed to be done with a restful heart of worship, but because of the fall of man, our work got separated from worship, and so God comes in and says, let me give you a guideline, and let me guide you, and set a rhythm in your life that you must worship Yahweh, so let me make a command that every seventh every seventh day, or I guess for us it would be Sunday, you rest and worship God, right? 
But the Pharisees, they took what's not written in the Bible and made all these regulations over the, the years, or I, I should say the Jewish leaders, which became traditions. Because while we are commanded to rest on the Sabbath, there's no details about, you know, what this looks like, right? What does it mean you can't work? So let me ask you, if, if, if there are some things that are the work of God. So if you're, let, let's just take the literal word for work, labor. And let's just say you're a pregnant woman and you're laboring. And the baby's going to come on Sunday. Can you stop laboring? You can't. So is that sin? Is that work? Because that's really hard work. That's really hard work to labor. Can you stop on Sunday? And are you disobedient for giving birth? Well, you can look at God and say, God, you're the one that brought the labor. <laughs> right? So, so that's not. Uh, can you serve God on a Sunday? Uh, and, and so, yes, you can you go to church, listen to a sermon, serve, and then work at night for some of you college students or for some of you tonight, you're going to work because you have to work in a hospital, like I said, or you have to work for the police department and you got Sunday night shift or you're a firefighter and you need to work Sunday. Can you go sell real estate, you know, this afternoon? Can you? Yes, you can, right? See, so it's not about that you can't do physical work. Can you climb stairs, right? But they had all these rules where you can't push an elevator button in our days, right? You can't do this or you can't do that because all of it's work. Now, some of that is from the Bible. In uh, in Exodus, um, in Exodus 34, verse uh, 21, uh, t- today, you guys are going to have to help me out. For some reason, it's just the last few weeks. It's not, the, the clicker's not going as well. Oh, I got to hold it up like this. Well, anyway, there's a bunch of stuff that, there you go. Is that all of it? Okay. Uh, let's go back. Uh, you guys, can you guys go back to that next slide for me? Yeah, thanks. So, um, I think if we keep preaching this way, you know, um, eventually we won't need slides because all of you guys will be like Bible student disciple makers, you know. Um, but these are just to guide you. Exodus 34, 21, it says, Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. And then it says this, In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. And, and, and so there are some specifics in the Bible where it says, it says on, on, on the Sabbath you shouldn't be doing any farming okay, or harvesting. And so that's the one that the Pharisees here in our passage, they're picking on Jesus' disciples. Look with me now back in our passage. Look at verses 25 to 26. And it says, he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry and he and those who were with him and now he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those who were with him. And so the Pharisees are picking on Jesus' disciples and saying, hey, there's actually a verse in Exodus that says you can't pluck the, the, the head of a, of, of a grain or wheat, right? You can't pluck the heads of that stuff. And, and your disciples are doing that to feed themselves because they need food. You guys are in violation. And Jesus, he's kind of funny. He says, well, let me give you an illustration from the Bible where David did something which would be technically unnatural and unlawful, but nowhere in the Bible does God ever condemn David, which means David, he was hungry, so he took his men into the holy place, the place of worship where there was bread. And so in the holy place of worship, this is like 
sanctified bread. You're not supposed to touch it. There's 12 loaves of bread set out by the priest. And so each loaf of bread was supposed to represent one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And David was hungry, and so he goes in there, and some of you guys would say, isn't that sacrilegious? I mean, even for me, I'm like, can you do this? Can you eat that holy bread? And they ate it to save themselves from starving. And that's not normal. You shouldn't do that by principle and practice, but when you're starving, can you save a life? And so the principle is that Jesus and God is pro-life before he's pro-religious principle, right? He's pro-saving all types of life. And so the illustration for us today is that if there was a, because today we don't deal with starvation in America as much, right? In terms of if you're homeless and if you really need food, there is some shelter. There, there, there's someone that's going to give it to you somewhere. But let's just say there's a major earthquake and for some weird reason, uh, so water lines are down for a couple of days. Electricity is down. But for some weird reason, FCBC Walnut's building is still erected. And so you, you're going to have people coming in to our building asking for food. And for some strange reason, we have no food and no running water, but all we have is a bunch of flat, unleavened bread and our grape juice for communion. And so can we serve that to people who are starving? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Right, But the answer is yes. Because when we serve it in a communion service and we say this is only for baptized believers, then what we're doing is we're adding a symbol to the, to the meal. And we're saying that this is for believers. But when it comes to emergency and an earthquake and saving lives, then food is food. Right? Then all it is is unleavened bread and grape juice. And at that point, Jesus is pro-life before he's pro-religious principle. So, yes, we ought to be saying, we, we shouldn't have a, a, we need to call an exceptional meeting to vote on this, and we need to see if, if we can serve this holy, you know, bread and juice to save starving people. I think all of the deacons and all of the pastors would say, yeah, let's go feed it. Let's go feed them because we're not having a communion service. Yes, non-Christians are going to be eating that food. But the principle of it is it's just food at that point, right? That's what happened with David, right? But the Pharisees, they're so stuck on rules that they don't care about saving life. And you're going to see that in the very next episode. They don't care about the people. They are not pro-human life. They are pro-rules and regulations. That they were blind to common sense. That yes, Jesus cares that you save people's life, okay? So, So the disciple-making insight for us is the following Jesus is not about a new set of rules. It's about a new relationship that changes you from within. And so when I say disciple-making insight, that's the application of the text for us. Is that when you're discipling someone, whether it's your children and you're trying to explain this to them, or whether it's a new believer that you're trying to explain this to them, or whether you're being discipled for the very first time by Jesus because you've never had a discipler, just remember that Christianity is not about a set of rules. There are rules, but those rules are meant to be a guideline. Christianity following Jesus is about 
a new relationship that changes you from within. And that gives you freedom. Because now you're able to see the meaning of the rules. And you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Meaning you don't worship the rules. You worship the ruler. You worship Jesus. And you understand that the rules are there as a guideline. But there are times where the ruler of your heart, Jesus, is going to tell you, you need to do this for him. You need to bend out of the ordinary in order to serve people. Okay? Um, to help you understand this, rules are for beginners. When you play a board game and you're new to that board game, there's rules. And so you're constantly asking, can I do this? Can I look at your cards? Can I show my cards? How many times do I roll the dice? Right? But after you learn how to play, you just play. You just play. And the rules are there as guidelines, right? Same thing with basketball. When you're playing basketball, you don't think, oh, I shouldn't double dribble. Oh, I shouldn't run out of bounds. I can't punch someone. That's a foul, right? You don't think that. You just play. If you do that, you're no longer playing basketball. The rules are there for beginners. Now, why is this an illustration? Because the Pharisees thought they were mature, but they were rookies of the faith. They thought they knew their Bible, but they were actually rookies. They didn't really know God. Because when you're mature as a Christian, see, when you're a new Christian, you say, can I cuss? <laughs> can, I, can I drink a little bit? Uh, can I date a non-Christian? So those are, the, those are the things that new Christians ask, right? How many times do I have to go to church? When Jesus says, love my neighbor, who is my neighbor? How many blocks <laughs> around my house? Worship on Sunday. Oh, how, how many hours is that? These are things that, these are good questions. And you should ask these questions. But these are questions that rookies and new Christians ask. And that's okay. But if you're a mature believer in Christ, you just play the game called following Jesus. Where you just love. You just serve. You just go. And every so often, you're reminded these are the rules. These are the rules, right? And so what we're saying is, everyone, get in the game. Don't focus on the rules. The rules are for us to disciple and teach new people. These are the guidelines. But when it when Christianity becomes part of your heart, you'll recognize the voice of the shepherd. You see, that's the problem with the Pharisees. You know that they were not saved. You know that they did not have a relationship with God because if they did, they would have recognized the Son of God. If you have a relationship with God, you would recognize because you would have been anticipating. You would have been looking for the signs. You would have looked at the Old Testament and you would have recognized the Messiah. And many of John the Baptist's disciples, John the Baptist was, was, was preparing them, get ready for the Messiah, get ready for the Lamb of God. And so when Jesus came on the scene, it was very easy for many of John the Baptist's disciples to just jump on board and say, that's the guy, that's the guy that JB, John the Baptist was talking about. And many of them, they followed uh, John the Baptist. I mean, John the Baptist's disciples, they followed Jesus. But the Pharisees, they weren't prepared. They weren't prepared for the Messiah because they, were, they didn't really know him because they were too busy worshiping their rules that they could not recognize the ruler and creator of all mankind. He's the one that created the Sabbath. And you see this in verses 27 and 28. Look at verses 27 and 28. And Jesus said to them, the Sabbath, the Sabbath, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. What does that statement mean? It's a little cryptic, right? It's a little bit like the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Well, here's what it means. The Sabbath, the Sabbath command of taking a day to rest and worship was made for God, right? It was made for God, meaning it was made for man to worship God. The Sabbath command was made for man to worship God. It was not, man was not made to worship the Sabbath. I mean, it is confusing. It took me some time to understand what Jesus is saying and and looking at some commentaries, right? But what Jesus is saying, so let me reiterate again, and you got to kind of pay attention and follow. What Jesus is saying is the Sabbath command was made for man to follow, okay, as a guideline. Not man made to worship that rule. If you don't get it, send me an email, hanley at fcbcwallen.org, because it took me some time, okay? And then verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I want you to pay attention to something here. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, I am Lord over the Sabbath, even though he is. He says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And what he's saying is that Jesus is saying, I am the true rest. I am the true restoration. I am the true worship. I am the day of worship. I am, I am. Right? He's saying, I am the Sabbath. And Pharisees, you can't get that. You're not seeing that you spent all this time, right? That's what it's saying. The Sabbath was made for man to be reminded that you need to take a day to recognize God. Not not man made to worship the Sabbath rule or day. And that's what they did. They made the Sabbath day into worship. They were worshiping Saturday. They were worshiping what you do on Saturday. That's like us saying we worship the act of preaching and we worship the act of singing and we worship the act of learning in Sunday school and we worship the act of serving and we're not worshiping the Savior that we're serving. And that's what's happening here. Now, Jesus is crazy. Because he refers to himself as the son of man. And for me and you, we're like son of man. Like, like, it, like it's not offensive to us. But keep in mind that when you're following Mark all along, uh, the Pharisees are against him. But you're going to see very soon, I'm going to show you, that they, they go from, we don't agree with this guy. Why is he hanging out with tax collectors? Why is he hanging out with the IRS wanting to save them? And, and why is he hanging out with sinners to let's conspire to kill him and you know why they want to kill him because he starts saying crazy stuff like this he calls himself the son of man you guys know what this is about uh you guys might have to help me with the slide i got a slide for you okay um son of man is from daniel chapter 7 and in daniel chapter 7 13 to 14 the son of man is described as this divine figure that's going to come out of heaven, the ancient of days, and he's going to come into the world. And this is the picture of God coming down from heaven to earth. And in Jewish expectation, they saw this as the Messiah, the divine Messiah, right? So he refers to himself as son of man and Lord of the Sabbath. But there are two ways the son of man is used. And here's where Jesus is crazy. Number one, he says, I am that guy, right? He says, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. 
And here's the second thing that he says. In Ezekiel, by the way, he's the greatest hunter in the Bible. Easy kill. Okay? Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, how many times in Ezekiel? How many times? 93 times. I think that's worth mentioning. 93 times Ezekiel is referred to or refers to himself or refers to, in some ways, the Son of Man. And in Ezekiel's context, so in Daniel's context, divine, creator, Lord, Messiah, in Ezekiel's context, it refers to human weakness, Ezekiel's suffering. It it refers to human frailty. And so what kind of Messiah is that? Have you guys heard of uh, this Messiah who's both divine, creator, Lord, holy, awesomeness, at the same time, broken, weak, humble, suffering. What's his name? What's his name? Say it louder. What's his name? Jesus. The Pharisees had never, they can't comprehend. They're like, what is this? One, they want that Messiah, the Daniel Messiah, and then they reject him. Two, they, they're like, this guy's too weak to be our Messiah, and they're the ones that wanted him crucified. So Mark is trying to show us, and Jesus is trying to teach his disciples, you guys don't know who you're following, that's what he's saying to his, his disciples, but as his disciples, his 12, are listening to him teach, they're beginning to say, whoa, this is that dude, this is the guy, this is... This is both Daniel and Ezekiel. This is, this is the son of man. So, so in your Bibles, take your highlighter and highlight it. Because don't skip over that, son of man. That is so significant because Jesus says, I'm the son of man, which is good news for us. That's God became us. God comes to save us. The Son of God identifies with human weakness and human frailty and wants to save us. Disciple makers, teach that to new believers. Teach that to non-Christians. Teach them the meaning of Son of Man. Let them know why throughout Mark, I think about 13 times, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Don't let it be cryptic. Because it's the gospel. Okay, so Jesus is both creator God, Messiah, and suffering servant who's going to die on the cross. And so Jesus once, once more puts himself in the place of and with the authority of God. At the same time, he puts himself accessible to humanity. And Jesus says he is the true Sabbath. He is the true rest. Now at this point, um, at, at this point, I'm going to abandon the slides, okay? So upstairs, just try to follow me. But I'm going to preach a lot better without the slides because then, you know, we're going to get this emotion going. I'm going to take off my jacket just so that we can get in the flow, all right? Because i got 20 minutes to, to close this out. All right, so you guys pray that the Holy Spirit speaks uh, and, and, and that we're faithful to the text, okay? Uh, now, at this point, let me explain that Sabbath also means deep rest and deep peace. And so it's not just a day of worship, but when you talk about your hand is withered, meaning your hand is broken, or you're ill with sickness, or you're emotionally discouraged and depressed, or you're, you're, you're just 
beat up because you're trying to raise your kids and they're not listening and you got three or four of them climbing all over you. So you're rolling into church. You barely got to church. You signed your kid into the, into the children's ministry. They're crying, pulling their leg. You're pulling here. You're not ready to worship. You know, you got your coffee spilled all over you. You're embarrassed. Someone greets you and you're like, Aah! you know, and you're sitting there. That's you. What's Sabbath? Where do you get your Sabbath? Singing the songs is not going to give you the Sabbath. Listening to the sermon is not going to give you the Sabbath. Those things guide you towards a person. And again, what's his name? Jesus. Okay? So at a certain point, you got to get the peace and the heart of the Sabbath is restoration and rest. That's what the Pharisees couldn't get. And so on the Sabbath, Jesus heals someone. He's actually defining the meaning of love your neighbor as yourself. He's, he's defining the heart of Sabbath, which is to get healing, to get restoration, to have your tired soul refreshed. And the Pharisees are, why are you healing a guy? <laughs> why are you healing a guy? You see how they did not get the meaning of the Sabbath. They worshiped the work of the Sabbath. They worshiped the regulation and the rule. They worship, oh man, we better not do anything on Saturday. And, and they worship, they didn't worship God. They didn't worship God. And that's the point. So that leads us to point number two. Point number two is true Sabbath was not meant to stop us from doing good. Okay. True Sabbath was not meant to stop us from doing good. If we go into, in there, we're like, eh, can I feed someone? It's the Sabbath. We've missed the point because we miss that Sabbath means restoration and rest. And that person is Jesus who gives it to us, right? So the point here is there's never a day when we should take a Sabbath from doing good. So you see someone on the side of the road, they, they fell off their bike, okay? And they're bleeding. There's no one else around. And you're driving around. You're like, should I stop? Nah, it's the Sabbath, right? That's the Pharisees. <laughs> That's the Pharisees when everything in you should be saying, I just came from church and I ought to go help this guy. Right? I ought to help this guy and say, are you okay? So the Pharisees criticized Jesus. Look with me now in chapter 3, Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. It says, again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. So this guy, like I said, his hand was withered. Uh, meaning his hand was 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 broken and it was lame. Uh, I, I don't have the details of it, but he he had a physical uh, defilement to his hand, and they watched Jesus. So they're testing Jesus. This is how hardened their hearts are. They're like, "Is he going to heal him? Is he going to restore his hand? Because if he does, we got him. If he does a good thing, we got him. He broke the rules. That's what they're saying." Right? So to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. So they might accuse him. Now look at verse 3. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And, and Jesus said to them, meaning the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm or to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Which is condemning. Because they don't even have an answer for this. These are the religious leaders. They don't have an answer. And verse 5 says, he looked around at them with anger. Now, Jesus, when he gets anger, it's righteous. Okay, it's righteous. And so he's angry at them, right? And he's grieved, meaning he's angry and sad at the same time 
He's because of the hardness of heart. And Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. So Jesus healed them. I want you to see their response. Their response is, okay, he broke the rules. Let's kill him. That's crazy. That's their response. So Jesus is telling them, don't miss the point about Sundays it's, or, or Sabbath. It's never wrong to do good deeds. Uh, the Sabbath was never meant to prohibit loving your neighbor as yourself. And here's the disciple-making insight. Following Jesus is not about being right. It's about having been made right by Jesus so that we can share him with others. Right? That's, so, so when you're teaching a new believer or when you're teaching your children and your children are fighting about this and that, you teach your children, you know, yes, you should do good things, but it's never about being right. It's the fact that you've been made right. You see, there's this self-centeredness that came with the Pharisees where, where they felt like, look, we keep the rules. We make ourselves righteous before God. Therefore, we're better than those people over there. Right? That's the heart of self-righteousness. But when you understand the sovereignty of God in salvation, it's completely different. It's completely, it's like, you know, I couldn't save myself. Uh, even if Jesus showed up, I wouldn't have believed in him apart from the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Even as a Christian, I still struggle. Man, there's this non-Christian out there. Or man, there's this this new Christian. Or there's this other Christian who's, who's really struggling. Rather than judging he or she, or rather than judging him or her, I should have compassion and reach out for, to them. You see, that's the heart that Jesus wants in the mature believer. Right? Is it, it's not, hey, we figured it out. We're in the church. We get it. There's new people who want to get in. Uh, you figure it out yourself, right? But, but the heart of realizing there was nothing I could do to save myself and Jesus saved me, it's not about keeping rules anymore. You see, it's not about being right. Oh, we're right. They're wrong. It's about, I've been made right by Jesus. I couldn't make myself right. Therefore, there's other people, they need to hear this. They need to hear that there's nothing you can do to make yourself right. So come in with us and come to Jesus because he can make you right. That's the gospel. Right? And so, so the Pharisees didn't get it. Look at, look at verse 7. I mean, verse 6, I'm sorry. Verse 6, that the Pharisees, they compromise their beliefs to protect their man-made religion. Because, because this religion that they have crafted uh, is if I just keep the Sabbath, if I just don't do anything, even not help people on the Sabbath, if I just do this, and, and last week we saw if I just fast on Mondays and Thursdays, then I've constructed a system that as long as I check off these things, then I'm right with God. And Jesus comes and threatens that system, that man-made religion, and they're like, man, let's compromise our beliefs now. What would it take for you to get together with your enemies and say, hey, let's just go kill someone. That's what they do now. Because look at verse 6. It says, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel, meaning they're talking now about making a, an agreement with the Herodians against him and how to destroy him. Who are the Her Herodians? Remember King Herod, bad guy? The Herods were a dynasty. And, and the Herodians are, 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 are Jewish. And the Herods 
made a deal with the Roman Empire. And so the Herodians were wealthy, uh, aristocratic people who supported the Herodian dynasty. And so the Herods believed in Greco-Roman influence upon Judaism. They supported the Roman Empire. So you have the Herods on one side, and you have the Pharisees on the other side. And the Pharisees were purists. They were like, we are against Greco-Roman influence you know, coming into Judaism. And we don't like the Roman Empire. And they wanted a Messiah who would come back and defeat the Roman Empire. So you have people, political parties, if you will, who hated each other. They hated each other. But they come together and say, let's kill Jesus. And so that shows you how weak the Pharisees' faith was. They compromised their heart. They compromised their beliefs. They compromised their man-made religion. And they want to kill Jesus now. That word, destroy him, that's strong. When you disagree with someone, you might say, hey, hey, let me go talk to this person. How many of you guys sit at home and say, hey, let me just, let me destroy someone? I mean, video game, maybe? You know, but how many, I mean, you might say, I hope the Lakers destroy the Suns or something like that, right? They will. You know, but, you know, I hope the Lakers destroy them. But you don't mean it. They actually mean to kill Jesus. They want to kill him. So they're going to make a plan. They're going to conspire. They're going to hold hands and link together with the Roman Empire to come up, come, come with a way to kill Jesus. The crazy thing is the Herodians are not the issue here. The Herodians, you know how many times in the New Testament the Herodians are mentioned? Three times. The Herodians are only mentioned three times. So all the New Testament wants you, wants to know, wants you to know about them are three times. And you know, all of those three times, they're mentioned as colluding or coming together with the Pharisees. So the Bible wants to know you to know this about the Herodians. It's more about the Pharisees. That every time you mention the Herodians in the Bible three times, it's because the Pharisees are basically compromising their beliefs, coming together with their enemies to kill Jesus. That's what the Bible Wants you to know. So here's the big idea of this morning's message. Okay, the big idea is Jesus focuses on the heart of worship before the act of worship. Jesus focuses on the heart of worship before the act of worship. And the act of worship is very important. You know, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about order and guidelines. Like, uh, imagine if you came on Sunday and it was just crazy ruckus. Imagine if I didn't prepare for my sermons at all and just came up here and started talking about left and right. Uh, imagine if there were no ushers. Imagine if our parking lot had no parking uh, lines. You know, just, just, just imagine. You know, so, so you need the act of preparing a church for worship all the way to parking, to children, to ushers, to, to worship songs that actually make sense. Uh, to actually, uh, you know, uh, electronic stuff and everything. Order and guidelines happen, but if you miss the heart, then you've missed everything. And so, when you're making disciples, it's these are things that you teach to your children. You know, when you dress up your children Sunday morning, and you take them to church, and, and you give them that one dollar, it's just a dollar, and you tell them, put this into the plate. What are you teaching them? Right, you're, you're going to teach them, oh, you know, not the, that one dollar is going to build a building, though Jesus will. Jesus will take that one dollar and multiply it, you know, because he looks at, the money's nothing to him, he looks at the heart. But you're teaching your child, hey, you know, 
we give back to God, right? You're trying to teach them a lesson. Or, or you might tell your, your children, hey, when you go to church, you know, we're going to worship now. We're going to worship Jesus. And, and so these are the same things that when you're sitting down with a new Christian or a younger Christian, you teach them the same things. You don't talk to them like your children, but you teach them the same things. That, that when they ask you, why do you worship on Sundays? Why? Uh, so, so this is a common thing. Somebody becomes a Christian and they're like, hey, so what do I do now? Do I start going to church on Sundays? What if I go on vacation? You know how to answer now. You're saying, well, Sundays are important, but it's the heart. So if you're on vacation and you can't make it on Sundays, just are you worshiping? And then you'll also probably tell them that worship is not just Sundays, right? You're going to teach this to your kids. So you teach it to a new believer too, that worship is not just Sundays. Worship is an attitude of the heart that you take into the work week and you worship the Lord in different creative ways relationally, work-wise, and Sundays you come back together as a corporate expression in song and praise and service. You know, somebody's going to ask you, like I mentioned, can you serve? Is that works? Not if you're serving with a rested heart. So when you're discipling someone, so this is how I'm going to keep talking to you, this is how our pastors are going to keep talking to you, okay? When you're discipling someone, or if you've never been discipled before, and somebody says, hey, you guys say that Sunday we're supposed to worship and rest, how come there's people serving God? And this is where it's a matter of the heart. If you're, if I'm preaching here, and if I'm just like, man, dude, I, I hate this. This is so stressful. Man, you know, I can't, can't, can't wait to get this done. And, and then I got to go to another meeting, which I have it. And let's say I'm really bitter about it. I don't want to go to this meeting. And why do we meet so much? And we got to do this and blah, blah, blah. Right? Or, or, or if, if the worship leader's up here, like worshiping, but, but he or she is like too busy, focused on, on, on everything, and they're just like getting mad at everybody. Hey, you missed the key. You guys don't do it. You missed the key. And just real angry. And if our, our ushers are like, gotta get the program up. Gotta, hey, you didn't get a program. You didn't get a program. That's just not worship. That's not worship. You see, so you can be leading worship. You can be working on a building program. You can be preaching. But is your heart rested in Jesus? Because the posture of worship comes out of here, goes out the four walls, into your families, into your relationships, into your workplace. Yes, we work. We were designed to work. And we work on Sundays too, and we work in the church. But we work with a rested heart. But that's part of the spiritual discipline. And so when we go back to, should we take a Sabbath? Yes, we should. And what does that Sabbath teaches, teach us? It's training wheels. So when you come every single Sunday, what we're doing is we're training our hearts to rest in Christ. And actually, that was the original creation plan. We're going to end where we started. In Genesis, God created the, the earth in six days. On the seventh day, he rested and he never stopped. Until the fall of man, right? But he never stopped. Which means God rested. And, he, and Adam and Eve were supposed to live in this rest. And God gave them a job. They were gardeners, right? They were supposed to be fruitful, multiply, uh, develop the garden. And they were supposed to fill the earth with reproducing image bearers of God. And they were supposed to work. So guys, we weren't created to take a vacation 24-7. We were created to work for the glory of God under the rest of God. We were supposed to, we we're supposed to work with a rested heart. You were supposed to go to your engineering job and say, wow, you know, I'm not stressed out. 
this is great because my, my boss is not sinful towards me and I'm not, I'm not, you know, how do we build a bridge now? How do we construct this so that humankind can move from here to there? And, and, and you know, you're supposed to go to, there wouldn't be medicine, I guess, but, you know, because everybody would be healed, but you'd probably be doing something else, right? How do we mix this with this and how do we come up with, with technology apart from the fall and how do we develop things so that we can communicate better and everyone's loving each other, right? But what happened at the fall? What happened after the fall in Genesis 3 was that, was that the word labor, it's funny how pregnancy, where do we get that from, right? It's funny how everything that, that was work, like giving birth, became labor and it became painful. And what was it for, what was the curse for Adam? It'll be very difficult for you to develop crops now. So, so the curse of the fall applied to you and me is that it'll be very hard to work. It'll be very hard to make money. It'll be very hard to survive. And so all the stress that you have at work is not because work by design was wrong, but because your heart was meant to have a constant rest with Jesus and God. And so when people burn out in ministry, it's not because ministry was bad, but it's because their hearts failed to rest. And Jesus comes and says, I bring that rest. So that's what Jesus says when, that's what he means when he says, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is your rest. He is your Sabbath. He's a true rest. He's a true place of rest. And when you bring Jesus into your families, into your homes, and into your workplaces, he changes everything. Beloved, will you pray with me? Father, we surrender not just to rest, the concept of rest, not just to Sundays, but to Jesus. Father, for those in here this morning whose hearts are anxious, stressed, troubled, will you, your person, your work, be their rest? And will you bring them to saving rest in Jesus? Lord, will you empower our church to be filled with disciple makers who are working hard to do great things for your kingdom, but yet with a rested and worshipful heart, empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit. Lord, will you empower our church to be a vibrant church that reproduces vibrant disciple makers and vibrant churches locally and globally. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.